Morning, Flatirons. How are you? Everybody have a good St. Patrick's Day. Wow. All right. You are not the St. Patrick's Day crowd. They were here last night. They all looked like leprechauns. I didn't understand it. Hey, um, have you ever had anybody ask you a stupid question? And have you ever had them ask you a stupid question by prefacing it by saying, can I ask you a stupid question, right? And here's the thing, oftentimes when people say, can I ask you a stupid question, what they're about to ask you is actually something really important. They just mean that it's something simple that's actually quite profound. And it's often the answers to those stupid questions in life that often can be life-altering. It's at those intersections in our lives where somebody who is brave enough and somebody who loves us enough comes alongside of us and is willing to ask us a stupid question, right? And sometimes it's something like this. What do you see in him, right? Or why are you dating her, right? Or what did you expect to happen when you went out with them? Or do you expect to get new results from doing the same thing over and over again? Do you think that's somehow going to change one day? Stupid questions like that. Those are the questions that oftentimes can really be life-changing. And what we're going to do today is we're going to watch as Jesus asks somebody a stupid question at an intersection in their life. We've been in this series called Intersection where we've been journeying through the book of John and we've been watching as Jesus has intersected with people at different points on the road of their life and he's, he's had interactions with them that have led to life-changing moments. And a couple of weeks ago, we learned about this meeting that this guy named Nicodemus had with Jesus that was a life-altering moment. And then last week, we looked at this royal official whose son was sick, who came and met with Jesus and from that point on, his life was different. And last week, what we learned was this, whenever Jesus fixed a physical need for somebody, it was intended to point to a much deeper, more significant spiritual need. But it's so easy, and Jesus knows this about us, it's very easy for us to get distracted by our physical needs at the expense of our spiritual needs. And the reality is Jesus is concerned with both of those, but at the end of the day, the spiritual need is the one that's the most important. And today, what we're going to look at is really just kind of part two of last week's sermon. And so we're literally going to pick up in the book of John exactly, exactly where we left off last week. So if you've got your Bibles, go to the book of John chapter five. If you don't have your Bible, go ahead and pull out your program. It'll also be on the, the screens there. And And here's one of the things that's interesting about John's gospel that's very, very unique to his gospel. He's not very concerned about the chronology of events in Jesus's ministry as much as he's concerned with the theology of things going on in Jesus's ministry. So what John will do is he will put events next to each other that have a theological connection with one another, even if they're not chronologically connected. And that's what we're going to see happen this morning. So look at this, John chapter five, pick it up in verse one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now stop right there, all right? We're not sure how much later this was. If you remember last week, I put that map up on the screen and Jesus was up in the northern part of the, of the region, up by the Sea of Galilee, and he was in that little town called Cana. This week, we find him back in Jerusalem, which is further south, and we know that he's there for a feast. Now, we're not sure which feast it was. A lot of commentators think it was the Passover feast, and if that's the case, that would put John chapter 5 exactly a year after John chapter 4. And so the question becomes, why would John do that? Why would he fast forward so much in Jesus's ministry? Why does he want to put these two stories right next to each other? And I think we'll understand the link here in a few minutes. Look at this, verse 2. 
Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So there's several things to kind of note here, all right? Number one, the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem was on the north side of town, up by the temple, and it was literally the gate where they led the sheep through on the way to the temple before they were sacrificed. And by that gate were a couple pools that were artesian pools that were fed by an underground spring, one of which became known as the Pool of Bethesda, which literally translates the house of mercy, which is why so many hospitals to this day are called Bethesda. That means house of mercy. It it comes directly out of this story. Now around those pools were these columns that provided shelter and also just kind of as a, a cool side note, one of the things that I think is really cool is that many of the things that are talked about in the Bible are continually confirmed by archaeology. And this is one of those moments along the way. So you could go home and Google today Pool of Bethesda and you'll see pictures of it because they dug it up in the last century. So I think that's kind of cool. Now, look at this next verse. Verse three. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So tons of people with disabilities would sit, lay, hang out by this pool under the shelter that the columns provided. And the question becomes, why? Why did people with physical needs flock to this pool? And you might be tempted to go on to verse four and you might have already noticed that you're probably going, there's a misprint in the program this week or something like that. Or if you have an NIV Bible in front of you going, wait a second, why does it skip from verse three to verse five? It's actually not a misprint. Um, We'll talk about this just for a second. Unless you have a King James Version Bible or a New King James Version Bible in front of you, you actually don't have a verse four. And here's why. One of the beautiful things about Bible translation and the process that we have in place for it is we have this, this plethora of ancient manuscripts that have been faithfully translated over the years and those manuscripts were translated by really faithful scribes over the years. Now every now and then something would creep into a translation known as a variant and a variant is usually an issue with like an apostrophe or a period. It's usually a punctuation issue. Every now and then a variant will involve a word or a phrase or a sentence and this is one of those Places And that's what the History Channel and Discovery Channel likes to create hour-long specials on and call the thousands of errors in the Bible, which is a very misleading and deceitful thing to say. So what the King James Version includes isn't in the oldest manuscripts we have, and most scholars think that it was a notation made by a scribe that was included in subsequent translations that shouldn't have been included. So I'll put it on the screens. Here's what verse 4 in the New King James Version says. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well after, well of whatever disease he had. Now here's what we'll see in a few moments. This was the popular belief of all the people who gathered around that pool. That's why they gathered there. So they had this superstitious belief that when the, when the water would bubble, that that meant an angel was stirring up the water and the first one in the water is the one who gets healed. Now here's the thing, they were artesian pools, they were spring fed, so they're much like a hot springs in the mountain in the mountains minus the European guys with Speedos, all right? Same thing, okay, which is a fortunate thing, all right? So, so they would bubble every now and then because they were fed by under, underground water. Now, there's a lot of reasons to believe that that superstition actually wasn't true, but we won't get into all that today. But if you have more questions about how the Bible is translated or you stayed up late one night and watched that, that episode on the Discovery Channel and you heard that there were thousands of errors in the Bible, here's what I want you to do. Go to Bible 101 on our website. I taught a seminar 
webinar a while back where I talked at length about how Bible translation works. And I think if you watch that and listen to the information there, you'll actually be more confident than you've ever been before that what we have is the word of God in the Bible. All right, so let's continue on with our story. Look at this in verse five. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, we're not really sure exactly what was wrong with this man. The text seems to indicate that he had some sort of paralysis. And here's the thing. He's been that way for 38 years. That's longer than the life expectancy of most men at this point in history at this place. That's a long time. I have no ability to relate to that, to be really honest with you. I I have no idea what that would do to someone's psyche. I have no idea what that would do to somebody's mind, body, and soul to be incapacitated for that long. Now, some of you, you can relate. Some of you, you've been battling, you've been struggling with something your whole life or most of your life. Some of you have been incapacitated by something, whether that's a disease, a disability, or an addiction for years and years. And so you can identify with this man. You can relate to where you are not being the place that you want to be, but you've been there for so long that at least you're used to it by now. Now look at this. Here comes the really stupid question. Verse, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Isn't that a dumb question? Isn't that a dumb question to ask somebody who's been laying there for 38 years? Isn't that a crazy question? Doesn't that seem like an absurd thing to say to somebody who's been incapacitated for four decades? I mean, the answer is obvious, Jesus. Yes, of course I want to get well. What are you, crazy? Why do you think I'm here? The question literally translates, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole? Maybe it's not such a crazy question because look at at how the man responds in verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water's stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Do you notice what he didn't do? He didn't answer the question, did he? Gave a bunch of excuses, but he didn't answer the question. He points back to the superstitious belief that the first one into the pool is the one who gets healed. And the question I have is, why didn't this man just answer the way that we think he should and just go, yes, yes, I, would, I want to be healed. Be really honest with you, okay? I'm going to be really transparent this morning. I'll give you my, my first knee-jerk reaction to this story is simply this. I don't think the guy wanted to get well. I don't. I don't think he wanted to get well. I think he'd become very accustomed to his way of life. I think it's been 38 years of the same thing, 38 years of relying on other people, 38 years of begging for help, laying by a pool. He's been hanging around this town for so long. It's all he really knows. So when Jesus asks him if he wants to get well, the proposition of being well is actually something really scary to him because what he sees in his future is him having to take responsibility for himself having to contribute to society and no more excuses. He sees something he either has never had or hasn't had in so long that he can't even remember it. It's the same reason some people have been in prison for years and years and years upon being paroled immediately do something to get themselves sent back to prison. Why? Because they've been institutionalized, right? See, freedom is better, but sometimes freedom is really, really scary. We as people have this tendency to prefer what we know versus what we don't know because the unknown is terrifying to us. And I think the thought of being well absolutely terrifies this man. Again, my first reaction to this guy is simply this. He doesn't want to get well. And the reason I think that I have that reaction to this man is because not just as a pastor, but as a person, I've walked with a lot of people in the midst of their addictions. 
I've got a lot of family history of addiction that's, that's in the past and current, and that's where this story sends my mind, and that's where this story sends my heart towards people I know and love who've been doing the same thing for so many years and getting the same tragic results. From all appearances, if I'm honest, it looks like to me, they don't really want to get well. I've got an uncle right now in my family who I, I love and I, I care about. I used to look up to a lot when I was a little kid. He was the fun uncle that, that I wanted to hang out with and, and he's an alcoholic. And to be really honest, it looks to me like he just doesn't want to get well. He's been afforded all the opportunities to get well and he simply chooses to make the same decisions over and over and over again and then acts surprised when he gets the same results. And to make matters worse, he always blames the people who've tried to help him the most over the years. I think he prefers to blame people. I think he prefers to make excuses. And some of you have been in the exact same position with people that you know and love. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you know how, how frustrating it is to watch somebody you love act in an absolutely insane way. When you have to do things, and I talked to people last night who've been in the same place I've been in, where you've had to go drag somebody out of a smelly hotel room and check them into rehab or check them into a hospital because you want them to be well more than it seems like they want themselves to be well, let me just tell you what that's called, awful. There's a lot of words I could give to it. You see, it's not a dumb question Jesus is asking. So I was kind of considering all this. I was thinking about all this. I was studying for the stories, thinking about my experience with this. And, and I was just kind of all kind of messed up in my head and my heart. And so I, I went to Lisa Brandenburg, who oversees our, our shift ministry on Friday nights, our recovery ministry. And I, I asked her, I said, how often, Lisa, do you see people who genuinely and honestly really don't want to get well? She sent me a response, which I found to be incredibly helpful. So if you've, been, if you've been walking through something like this with somebody you love, then listen to this because I think it'll help you too. Here's what she said. It'll be on the screens. Most people who appear to others to not want to get well actually do, but they're consumed by their powerlessness over their dependency and paralyzing fear of living without the thing that's keeping them sick. It's not that they don't want to get well. They just don't believe that they can live any other way. Doesn't make sense to most people, but to bring this to a personal level, that was the case for me at one time. I realize how hard that is for people around the attic to understand. I, I know now I always had a choice, but there was a time when I absolutely didn't believe I did. Everyone around me thought I was refusing to get well, and that was true for a while, but I very well remember the hopelessness of wanting to make a different choice to be well and failing every time. God saved me from that, and that's the only reason I'm well today. See, if you're wired like me and you have a tendency to look at people who are addicted and say, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you just stop that? Like you're making a choice to do something that's killing you. Why don't you make a choice to not do that anymore? Lisa's words helped me a lot to see from my limited perspective that it's much deeper than that. Now for a lot of you this morning, Jesus is asking you the same question he asked that man by the pool. Do you want to get well? Do you really? And the question isn't, do you want to stop doing that or start doing this? The question is literally, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be restored? Do you want to be whole more than you want to drink? Do you want to be restored more than you want to get home and get in front of the computer screen as soon as this service is over? Do you want to be well more than you and fill in the blank? Or have you become comfortable and settled in the predictability of your misery? See, look at what Jesus does with this man in verse Verse eight, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. 
At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Now a lot stands out here. One is this, Jesus doesn't ask the man to get up, he tells him to. Jesus is in charge. That would be the takeaway there. He commands the man to get up and he miraculously does. He's healed. But here's, here's the big thing that I take out of that. What about everybody else? Right? This isn't the only dude laying by the pool. There's a whole bunch of other people laying there and I bet some of them wanted to be well more than this guy wanted to be well. I bet some of them are raising their hand going, me next. Well, my turn. I, w- I want to be well too. Right? And yet Jesus doesn't heal any of these people. He heals one guy, one. Why does he do that? So listen to this. Just because you want to be well doesn't mean you'll get well. No voodoo or power of positive thinking is going to work. Remember what Jesus said last week? Apart from me, you can do nothing. You may want to get well, and listen, Jesus may not heal you. It's not a popular thing to say in churches today. It's actually a lot more popular to say, if you just believe, you'll always get well. It's not the way it worked when Jesus walked around on this planet. I don't think it works that way now. And I got yelled at in the lobby for saying that last week, but I'm not very smart, so I'll say it again. The reality is that Jesus left most people, when he was doing ministry, he left most people who were sick and disabled, sick and disabled, He healed a handful of people. And whenever he did heal someone, he did it, as we learned last week, to demonstrate something bigger, something eternal by taking care of a temporary need. Everyone he healed got sick later on at some point and died, right? So what is Jesus trying to demonstrate in this moment with this guy? What's the eternal thing he's trying to point to by taking care of this man's temporary problem of paralysis? And the clue is given in that last little phrase of verse nine when it says the day on which the man was healed was the Sabbath. And for those of you who who grew up Jewish, you know, oh, that's a big deal. And those of you who studied the gospels for a while, you know that whenever Jesus does anything at all, if he even moves on the Sabbath, he gets in trouble, right? If he does anything on the Sabbath, he always finds himself in trouble with the religious rule keepers of his day. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens here. What Jesus has done by healing this man on the Sabbath is in in essence, he's picked a fight. Look at this in verse 10. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. So here's what's going on, all right? Here's this guy, 38 years, he's, he's, been, he's been disabled, laying beside this pool. He gets up, he's using his legs for the very first time, and all these people notice is, wait a second, you're carrying your mat. Stop that. You are breaking the rules. And the reality is he wasn't breaking any rules. One of the rules for the Sabbath was simply this, don't carry a heavy load on the Sabbath. That's very open-ended, and it's open-ended for a reason, because the Sabbath was never intended to be dissected, and hairs were never intended to be split. The Sabbath was intended to be a gift to God's people of rest. So one day a week, just take a break. One day a week, don't do work. One day a week, acknowledge the fact that I, as God, literally have the whole world in my hand, and you can sit down, and I'll take care of it. And yet, rule after rule had been added by teacher after teacher because they missed the point of the Sabbath altogether. Finally, you get to a point to where they can't even see a miracle when it's in front of them, and all they want to talk about is a man carrying his mat. Kind of a downer, for sure. Now, I want you to notice how this man responds because it's going to indicate something about the current condition of his heart. Look at this in verse 11. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. In other words, not my fault. 
That guy told me to do it. He passes the buck. He's at this intersection in his life and he's so quick to throw Jesus under the bus. He betrays the very person who healed him, which is the first indication that while this man's legs are well, his heart is dead. Still very, very sick. Look at this, verse 12. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who, who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. So they basically mount a witch hunt. They're after this guy. Who told this guy to carry his mat? We have to find him. And the story shifts back in an interesting direction. Look at this in verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I like that. That's Godfather style right there. I like that. <laughs> make you an offer you can't refuse the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well he rats out Jesus again so Jesus finds this man at the temple and I want you to hang on to that phrase Jesus found him in other words Jesus slipped away earlier but he didn't just leave this man to be physically healed without being concerned about his heart he pursues this man have you ever had a sense that God's pursuing you Have you ever had a sense of how just absolutely unavoidable God can be sometimes? Maybe you've been in a place where you've been battling something for years and you're simply done fighting, but you have this nagging sense that God's still pursuing you. I need you to hear me right now. I make you no promises that God will take away your circumstances. I'm making no promises that God will take the sickness away. I'm making no promises that he'll take the struggle away. What I promise is only what he promises in the Bible, which is this, that his grace will be sufficient for you in the midst of your struggle and that his power will be made perfect in your weakness in the midst of your circumstances. You can actually be whole despite your circumstances. You can be whole despite your struggles. And here's the thing about struggles. Often it's our struggles that remind us of how desperately we need Jesus, right? I've quoted this to you before, but it's really, really relevant this weekend, so I'll I'll quote it to you again. One of my favorite authors, this guy named Philip Yancey, he just lives south of here actually, and he, in one of his recent books, has an entire chapter dedicated to things he's learned from, from friends of his who struggled with addiction, and he quotes a friend of his who struggled with alcoholism, and he says this. I prayed every day that God would take away my thirst for drink. And every day when I woke up, my first thought was Jack Daniels. Then one day I realized my craving for drink was the very reason I pray every day. My weakness drives me to God. My weakness drives me to God. So there's the intersection today. Because every one of us have weaknesses not just one, plural. And the question becomes, do our weaknesses drive us to God? Do our weaknesses drive us to our knees and in, on dependency on God? Or do our weaknesses drive us away from him? That's the question. That's the intersection today. And with this guy in the story, you might go, uh, he ran to God. He went to the temple. He hadn't been allowed to be in the temple for 38 years because the lame weren't allowed there. And so Jesus finds him in the temple. So surely he was pursuing God. But Jesus finds this man and identifies the the heart problem going on. Jesus undoubtedly has been made aware that not only are the religious leaders chasing after him, but this man who he's healed keeps on ratting him out and throwing him under the bus. And so Jesus says, listen, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, which is in essence saying this, don't mistake your physical health for spiritual health. Don't mistake the fact that you can walk around on two legs to mean that your heart is well. Well, 
Don't assume just because you can run all day. Listen, we, we live in the healthiest state in the whole country and one of the healthiest areas of the healthiest state in the whole country. But don't mistake the fact that you can run all day or lift a bunch of weights for spiritual health. It's not the same thing. And Jesus says that in a day of TV preachers and snake oil salesmen who tell you the best measuring stick of your spiritual health is your physical health. And the problem anyone has who teaches that is twofold. One, what the Bible actually says, and two, the death rate. I don't know if you know what it is. It's holding steady at 100%. I know that's not a very festive announcement today. I mean, I'll go back and check on the internet after I'm done just to make sure, but I'm pretty sure it's still 100%. And I'm pretty sure that every person on their way to death prays a prayer at some point on that journey, hey God, make it stop. Hey God, I'd rather not die right now. And guess what? They still die. And we all will. See, our bodies, listen, I'm all for taking care of our bodies. We should eat well. We should exercise. That's commanded by the scripture. You should take care of this, all right? But our bodies are just like every other natural thing in this world. They are wearing out and falling apart. So the reverse is also true. Don't confuse your lack of physical health for a lack of spiritual health. I might go on all day on this. I mean, I give example after example of people in the Bible, outside the Bible, great heroes of the faith, people unknown, people that I've known who are just spiritually as whole as they can be, but their bodies have fallen apart. I mean, we could talk about Mother Teresa to Billy Graham. We could talk about Martin Luther who had all kinds of health problems. We could talk about Paul in the New Testament and all his many afflictions, but we don't have to do that. Let's just talk about last week and this week. Last week, we looked at a man who was seeking physical healing for his son and he received it, but it led to something greater and that was spiritual healing for his whole family. The temporary solution led to an eternal one of greater significance. This week, we're looking at a guy who was seeking physical healing and he received that, but at the end of the day, he remained a spiritual wreck. See, the main focus of the story is simply this, don't miss Jesus. Don't miss him. Don't miss him like this, this man did. He missed him even though Jesus is the one who healed him. He missed who Jesus really was. He couldn't see past the physical healing to see the spiritual healing that was available to him. Don't miss him like the, the, the religious rule keepers did. Don't miss him even though every scripture they had ever memorized and every scripture they had ever taught, ever taught, every feast they had ever attended was all pointing to Jesus and they missed him because they couldn't have a framework for how Jesus could even be a good person, much less God. And that's what Jesus is trying to direct them to. Look, look at how he wraps up this interaction in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When it says they persecuted him, it means literally they put pressure on him. They put the squeeze on him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to back him into a corner. And Jesus is not afraid of that. What Jesus actually does is he goads them all the more. Do you notice how many times he used the word work just to tick them off? My father's working right now, and even I'm working to this day. We're working, 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 working right? They, they want to kill him because of that. 
Not just because of that, because what he's doing is unprecedented. He calls God his father and they see what he's doing. He's putting himself on par with God. And Jesus is saying, listen, all right, put aside the man that I just healed. I can do that a million times over if I want to, all right? Put aside the Sabbath. By the way, I'm in charge of it. It was my idea. Put that aside for a second. Here you are at this crossroads, at this intersection of your life. Here's what I have to say to you. I'm God. Now, what are you going to do with that? He forces the issue. He causes a crisis for them. You see, it's so easy to get distracted by so many things. Our physical problems, our financial problems, our family problems, and the list goes on and on. But Jesus constantly pursues us with this one thing, the most important thing. What do you believe to be true about Jesus and are you willing to follow him? That's the most important thing. I'm going to land today in a pretty personal place. I'm going I'm to read you a part of a, a letter I wrote a while back to my, my uncle that I mentioned earlier. And I wrote this letter a long, long time before I ever knew that I was going to be teaching on this story this morning. And it's kind of interesting what, what's in the letter compared to what we're talking about today. And the reason I read it to you is only because I believe that many of you are you're on the same road that he's been on for about 40 years. You may be only two weeks down that road, or you may be 20 years down that road, or you may be 60 years down that road, but you find yourself on the same road that my uncle's been on for about four decades. I said this, I've never known you to be content, to be satisfied. The reason for that is you've always sought contentment and satisfaction in things that cannot deliver. You seem to think everyone wants you to just stop drinking, and I would want you to stop drinking for your physical health, or you'll be physically dead sooner than later. But I've never believed drinking was your problem. Drinking is only a symptom of your problem. Do you remember telling me when you were sober once that your goal in life was to get your kids raised, earn enough money to buy a cabin where you could then drink yourself to death in the mountains? That's not the thinking of a sober person. You weren't drinking, yet you still thought in an insane way. The issue is most certainly not your drinking. The issue is your heart. You've tried endlessly and tirelessly to satisfy your heart's desires and you've still ended up empty. You can blame other people and none of us are perfect, so I'm sure blame is easy to assign. But at the end of the day, you're the one left with your life. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to keep on walking down the same road you've been on and expect to get different results? That's the definition of insanity, by the way. Everything always has to be on your terms. Look at your life. This is what your terms have achieved. If you're in a hotel room somewhere, I suggest grabbing the Bible in the drawer beside you and read the book of Ecclesiastes. Then read John chapter 5, verse 1 through 8. I think the question for you is much like the question Jesus asked this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. Do you want to get well? If you really want to get well, you're going to have to start pursuing the only person who can satisfy what your heart has longed for all these years. And his name is Jesus. And the same thing is true for you today. If you really want to get well, you're going to have to pursue the one who's been pursuing you, the only one who can satisfy what your heart has longed for all these years. And his name is Jesus. We usually wait until the very end of the service to mention this, but I want to highlight it right now before we sing one more song. We have people that'll be down front up in the balcony and people down front in front of the stage here that would love to pray with you. They're not counselors. They're not even allowed to give you advice. You don't have to tell them your story. If you just want to say, can you pray for me? They they will do that. But 
If you come in here today and you know that you're not well, here's the question. Do you want to get well? And if so, let walking down front here and having someone pray for you be the first sign that you want to get well. Or better yet, if you came here with somebody today that you know and love, ask them to pray for you before you leave here today. But if you want to get well, don't leave here today without somebody praying with you and for you. I'm going to pray for you right now whether you like it or not. All right? So here we go. Father, we are broken people. You know that better than we do. You can see more clearly everything we were intended to be than we ever dreamed of. God, we are, we are broken and we, uh, we make mistakes and we pursue things that we think will satisfy us that ultimately destroy us. And sometimes we blame you for that. God, I pray for people in this room right now that don't, don't even believe you're real. I pray that you'll make yourself known to them in, in a way that only you can and God, I pray for people in this room who may believe that you're real, but they don't believe you're good. I pray that you'll reveal yourself as a good God and a good Father in a way that only you can this morning. God, I pray that you will produce in us courage where there isn't any. You'll produce in us faith where we have none. That your grace and that your mercy will flow in this place and in our hearts today. And tomorrow we'll ask you for the same thing again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.